Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for this coming Saturday, April 11th, 2020. Right now, it is Wednesday morning, and once again, we have our friend Truthvids here with us to help us address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seed Line Doctrine? This is part nine. And it's titled or subtitled Decoding Genesis 4-1. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good morning, Truth Hits. Hey, Bill. It's great to be back. Uh, yeah, Genesis 4-1 is certainly uh, very interesting. Uh, I actually read the article uh, a while back, the one you're going to bring up, that was written by Clifton. Uh, even today, it's amazing. Even after he's passed away, he's still teaching me every day. Uh, I always try and like read up uh, one of his articles every night. So I'm glad that you've preserved his work, and I'd always encourage other people to go back and read many of his articles. Um, also, um, for, for many people, the idea that a verse or any part of the Bible could be corrupted seems impossible. Uh, we're going to get to that. And, uh, you know, many people, they believe a certain translation is infallible whether it's the king james version or the geneva bible or whatever but um if you understand that the original manuscript the verse is corrupted then you can see how doesn't matter what translation they're always going to get wrong and um you have to understand that yahweh god allowed it to happen only so that he could later reveal the truth and at a pointed time to his chosen people that being us the european israelites then it all fits into place once you understand that. Well, well, right. I, I have a paper I wrote, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago called On Biblical Exegesis, how a Christian should properly approach biblical exegesis, and it asserts that the Old Testament can only be understood through the words of Christ and his apostles. And that is because portions of the Old Testament were evidently corrupted, and they were already corrupted by the time of Jeremiah, which is perhaps 620 B.C. when Jeremiah began to write, maybe 610 B.C., through to the um, fall of Jerusalem, which happened probably in 586, 585 B.C., the scriptures were already corrupted in certain ways. So we see in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 8, how do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. In other words, certain things were corrupted by the time Jeremiah wrote. And if Jeremiah couldn't fix them in 610 BC, how do you how do we think we could fix them? <laughs> if they were corrupted in the original Hebrew, how do we think we could make it better in English? We can't. So we have to accept the fact. Is that um that, that at least certain things in the law? Sorry, I was just corrupted. gonna say it says in Chronicles that the Kenites were sneaking in and they were the scribes. Is that what you're uh, also going over? Well, well, I mean, that, that right. The Kenites, 
that certainly does seem to be a reference to the tribes of the Kenites who were present in Jerusalem, who were the scribes. And we have to understand the ancient culture of the time in order to understand that. The word Kenite also means smith by trade, by occupation. But the Kenites, that's why it means smith, the Kenites the descendants of Cain, were smiths. And the ancient smiths, when they used to make, um, when, when men wanted to make covenants or contracts or, or deeds or bills of sale or, or anything they had to make, they inscribed it on clay tablets. And they had to go bake the clay tablets in an oven. And they had to roll their seal across it and bake the clay tablets in an oven in, in order to harden it. They didn't have paper contracts like we have that were just signed but with ballpoint pens. They didn't have that. So the Smiths, they were the ones that had that technology and the ability to do those things. So they naturally became the scribes. And the Kenites, the, the tribe of the Kenites, were the prominent smiths of the ancient world. So the word Kenite eventually came to be synonymous with smith. You could be a smith and not be a Kenite, but the tribe of Kenites were also smiths. So it, it's, um, it, it might be a little confusing whether any particular reference to Kenites it is a reference to the tribe itself or to people who later took up the occupation, like in um, Hebert Kenite, he was just a man who later took up the occupation. And that's because we learned he was a Midianite by race. He wasn't a Kenite. So it, it's a little confusing, the, the scripture in that area. And that's because people don't understand the history and the culture. That they, they just think they could read the Bible without studying history and culture. And they're never going to understand it that way. That's a digression, but but it's an important. But um, one. it makes, but but, sorry, just one last thing. It makes perfect sense that if the descendants of Cain did get their hands on the Bible, the the main verse they'd want to hone in on would be that one where they originated from, where Cain come from. Because if they could prove that he was from Adam, then, well, then they're Adamites. They're not another race. So it's very important for them to corrupt that verse, and it would make sense. Well, well, absolutely. But there are sufficient clues in Scripture, and especially in the New Testament, that inform us that Adam couldn't have been Cain's father. And, and the entire context of the Old Testament informs us that Adam could not have been the father of Cain. But Charles Weissman denies that, and we will see today that he lied. He must have lied purposely. He lied. I caught him in one paragraph later today. We will see that Charles Weissman lied four times in one paragraph in order to deny two seed line. He manufactured many lies. If, if two seed line was not true, you would not have to lie to disprove it. Yet, Charles Weissman lied again and again and again. And we've already proven um, many of his lies, uh, uh, if, if my memory serves me correctly. 
at least several significant ones. Well, here in one paragraph, he lies four times. In my opinion, we have already destroyed Charles Weissman's supposed refutation of two seed line in several different and significant ways. But we are not even halfway through his book. And to be fair, we must finish presenting all of Weissman's arguments and answer them all with the appropriate evidence wherever we believe they are wrong. Because, of course, Weissman didn't get everything wrong. In our last presentation, I think we exposed three major failures in Weissman's arguments at the end of chapter three, where he had insisted that the giants of Genesis chapter six and later scriptures were the were only the offspring of unions between the sons of Cain and the daughters of Seth. But of course, he doesn't explain how those unions could create giants. But first, he failed to read the text of Genesis chapter 6, verse 4 properly, as it explains that giants were in the earth both before and after that event. So if the verse is read correctly, Weissman must answer how giants were already in the earth in those days, as Yahweh did not create any giants in Genesis chapter 1. Secondly, he failed to explain that if the sons of God were the sons of Cain, as he insisted, and if he believes that Cain was a son of Adam, as he also insisted, and if the sons of Cain were in the image of God, as he had further insisted, why? That would be a sin so grievous as to cause God to destroy all the descendants of Seth for mixing with the sons of Cain. Since Seth was also in the image of God, being in the image of Adam, his father. Weissman never explained how this was a sin, but we have on many occasions explained precisely how it was sin. But thirdly, <clears throat> and not finally, because there were other errors as well, but we won't summarize them here today, Weissman lied about the definition of the word Nephilim, which certainly can mean fallen ones. By presenting Jesenius's admitted preference as if it were the only authoritative definition, Weissman purposely lied by not citing Jesenius's entire definition. Presenting Jesenius's entire definition of Nephil, we saw that Jesenius himself explained that it could mean fallen one, or at least faller, and in plural that would be fallen ones or fallers, and that it was often interpreted in that manner as Jesenius also admitted. But Jesenius himself chose to follow the Jews, whom he mistakenly called Hebrews, who insisted that it meant fellers instead. And we believe that helped to obfuscate the truth. Now, last week, and, and 
I, I'm sorry about this. Last week, I promised to provide a scan of page 556 of Jacenius's lexicon, which contains the definition for nephil, the singular form of nephilim. And I apologize for adding it late, as I realized I didn't do it until yesterday, so I added it yesterday morning. And I'll link it here, but it's also now linked in last week's presentation. So Weissman lied about the text of Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, or perhaps he could not read it. Then he lied about Jesenius' definition of nephil or nephilim. And then he failed to see the discrepancy in his interpretation of the phrases sons of God and daughters of men, since, as he insisted, if the sons of God were the children of Cain and of Adam, they and they bore the image of God, which he also insisted, then where is the sin if they had mated and had children with the descendants of Seth? Weissman's refutation of two seed line is shot full of holes. We are not doing the shooting. He himself has already done that. We are only pointing out the fact that his arguments do not hold water. So now, because we are compelled to finish this expose of his supposed refutation, we will commence with chapter four of his book, which he titled The Role of Cain, where he begins under the subtitle Cain's Origin, and he commences, and we're on page 27. I don't know if you want to add anything before we continue. No, I'm happy to uh, get straight into it. The, the origin of Cain, the ancestor of the Jews. Weissman, on page 27, the question of Cain's origin is a central issue and argument of the Satanic Seedline Doctrine. Since Cain is said to be the offspring of the serpent or Satan, the first mention of Cain is in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, which states, And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Weissman responds to that, to that verse in Genesis chapter 4, and he says, there have been several objections raised about this verse, because by its plain reading, it implies that Adam was the father of Cain. One advocate of the satanic seedline doctrine said, this verse is one of the worst polluted and poorly translated verses in the entire King James Bible. Weissman says, that is a rather bold and far-reaching statement, one that requires much justification. One explanation is that the word new means merely to observe or perceive. They claim that Adam observed that Eve conceived or that he saw that she was pregnant. The claim then is that the verse is not saying Adam had sexual relations with Eve, which produced Cain. Now, Weissman is correct that this was an argument posited by early two-seed-line pastors and teachers. But it is not our argument. Weissman did have a chance to hear our argument, as it was first published by Clifton Emmerheiser in 2007. But 
and and Weissman didn't die until 2016, I believe. But I am not entirely certain that he did hear or read Clifton's paper. I'm not entirely certain. The problem with Genesis 4.1, where Clifton explained much of what we are about to explain again, was written by Clifton and published in 2007. First, uh, be, before getting into Genesis 4.1, I, I want to say, and, and a friend I was talking to over the weekend said, why didn't you mention this about Genesis 3? Or why didn't you mention that about Genesis chapter 3? And, and there's just a couple of things that I will mention for his sake, but also just to reiterate the fact that we know that Genesis chapter 3 is a parable about sexual relations. The woman desired the tree. She saw that it was good for food. After she ate, after she gave to her husband and he ate, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Now, we have already shown from ancient literature such as the Epic of Gilgamesh that the metaphors, the allegories which Moses used here were indeed allegories used of sexual relations in other literature of the same time period, namely the Epic of Gilgamesh. So, if they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, aprons are garments which cover the genitals. If they were embarrassed about what they had done and wanted to hide the scene of the crime, why did they make aprons? Why didn't they make hoods? If it was a mental crime, they should have made themselves hoodies. It's absolutely clear this is a sexual allegory. And and they discovered their nakedness because of what they had done. Later on in the chapter, God says to the woman that in sorrow and conception, thou shalt bring forth children. That sorrow first manifested itself in Genesis chapter 4, where Cain slew Abel. She brought forth children in sorrow and conception because one of those children was a bastard that hated his brother. As the Apostle John explains in his first epistle, if you hate your brother, you're not from God. And if Cain is not Adam's son, but the son of the serpent, then of course he was not from God. And thy desire, God tells Eve, shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee, which proves that Eve desired another man. So, I mean, it's so clear that Genesis 3, once you understand just a few terms... Were they trying to say that... um... Sorry. Well, well, I'm just going to say, once you understand just a few terms, how they were used at the time that Moses wrote this, it's unmistakably an allegory concerning sexual relations. I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, uh, all I was going to say is 
they'll, they'll say, you know, um, because women have pain when they give birth, that was the punishment. And um, obviously with the whole fawns, they say, you know, um, you know, silly things like plants never used to have fawns. But after this, there was the punishment that now you'll have fawns, uh, you know, and, and also that they even go get silly and say, um, you know, lion never used to have teeth. But now even animals will try and uh, attack you and kill you or, or as punishment. But you can see that that's not what he's what Yahweh is saying to us. He's saying um, the other races will be our fawns and, you know, Cain will kill our you know, brothers, descendants, and that's going to be the cause of the sorrow, just what you said. Well, well, right, absolutely. That's the cause of the sorrow. The, the fact that they race-mixed and, and produced Cain, and, and that was really only the first step in a long line of race-mixing. The second step is in Genesis chapter 6. Because man was prone to that, he, because he didn't obey the law of God that said, do not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because once you do, you will surely die. These punishments which are pronounced are also allegories for the results of their sin. Where it says that thorns and thistles it shall bring forth, Speaking of the speaking of the fields that Adam was supposed to work. Well, Adam was supposed to work the fields. He was supposed to tend the garden as soon as he he was created. So agriculture is not part of his punishment. Agriculture here is being used as an allegory for the trouble that Adam was going to have because he accepted the sin of Eve. So thorns and thistles shall the ground bring forth unto thee, his future descendants, some of them would be thorns and thistles. What descendants? Well, in Genesis chapter 10, we see the Canaanites descended from Adam, but the Canaanites were cursed and they went off and they intermingled with the descendants of Cain and the Rephaim and other groups that did not come from Adam, just as Cain had gone out of the garden to the land of Nod and built a city for people that did not descend from Adam. He didn't need to build a city just because he had a wife and one child. Well, this is the thorns and thistles. The Canaanites were later called thorns and thistles because they had race mixed. They would be thorns and, and, and spikes in the sides of the children of Israel, thorns in their eyes, they are the thorns and thistles. This is an admonition that now you're going to have this great struggle, you and your descendants are going to have this great struggle with this issue because you did this. And we still struggle with the issue. We still have tares. And who planted the tares? Yes. The devil. And we'll get into that later in Weissman's book. But who planted that? When were the tares planted? I'll tell you when the tares were planted. They were planted in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 6. That's when the tares were planted. Weissman is correct that early two seed line pastors and teachers did have um, silly childish arguments in a lot of ways. The same way that early and, and even modern denominational Christians have silly, childish interpretations of Genesis chapter 3, as, as we've seen. So, 
This is not our argument that the verse is merely mistranslated. And we can establish our argument from both modern and ancient sources. First, the second half of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, can scarcely be translated because it contains a gloss. And Clifton's paper on the subject cited the interpreter's Bible in reference to that gloss. And Clifton wrote, the Interpreter's Bible, a 12-volume collaborative work of 36 consulting editors and 124 other contributors, makes the following observation on this verse in Volume 1, page 517. And I will try to dig out um, this, these books and, and actually scan this page so that people could see this. I'll try to remember, because I forgot last week, right? I'll try to remember to scan this page and post it with this podcast on Saturday. The Interpreter's Bible says on page 517, volume 1, Cain seems originally to have been the ancestor of the Kenites. The meaning of the name is metalworker or smith. Here, however, it is represented as a derivation of a word meaning acquire, get, one of the popular etymologies frequent in Genesis. And I would say that the actual reality of the definitions is the other way around, but that's okay. Hence the mother's words, I have gotten a man from the Lord, as the King James Version has it. They have KJV in parentheses. From the Lord is a rendering, following the Septuagint and Vulgate of Et Yahweh, which is literally, with Yahweh, I have gotten a man with Yahweh, literally. So they say that this is so unintelligible here. And then they have a parenthetical remark that the words, the help of, which are seen in the Revised Standard Version, are not in the Hebrew. So the Revised Standard Version struggled with translating this half a verse. It is so unintelligible here that it seems probable that F should be off. So the mark of Yahweh and that the words are a gloss. Now, I don't agree with their correction of the verse. I believe we cannot correct the verse, and I'm going to get into the reasons why for that shortly. But to finish the citation from Clifton's paper, Clifton said, secondly, the interpreter's one-volume commentary on the Bible, edited by Charles M. Lehman, makes the following comment on this passage on page 6. This is a condensed later version of the first work and it shows that the interpreter's commentary on the bible did not change its position on this verse in later editions right that's what it's good for charles m layman makes the following comment on this passage on page six under circumstances which are obscure verse 1b the second half of genesis 4 1 can scarcely be translated, still less understood. 
His younger brother Abel was named his younger brother was named Abel, which suggests the Hebrew word for breath. Now, here it is recognized that the second half of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 contains a gloss, that there is an error in the grammar, which was most likely caused by an early scribe. So the interpreter's Bible tried to correct the gloss, but we do not necessarily have to agree with the correction, as even they can only conjecture. It's only conjecture. I don't know if you have anything you want to say there. Yeah, um, I, I didn't actually understand what a gloss meant. I, I had to actually go look it up. Um, you know, not that I'm super intelligent or anything, but I just thought maybe if there's other people, you know, stupid as me, uh, they might want that explained, what it actually means by a gloss. I, I assumed it meant that they tried to polish up the, um, you know, the verse, like when you gloss a wall or you varnish. But, well, that might you, you indeed be. You said it actually be. has to do with the word. That, that might indeed be what they tried to do is polish it up, but they screwed it up trying to polish it up. Uh, I mean, I do believe that Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 is entirely corrupt. And the circumstances here in the second half of the verse help to establish that. But that's besides the point. Okay, a gloss. Yet, you know, don't fault yourself for not knowing what a gloss is, because in this context, it, it's a, um, a specialized term that really only translators or people that study translations are familiar with. It takes 20 years to get to, to the point where you could really understand all this stuff. That, that's just the way it is. That's how long it, it takes to study. So a gloss in this context comes from the Greek word glossa. And glossa is tongue. Tongue or language by extension, right? A tongue is a language in scripture. And in the New Testament, where it uses the word tongues, it comes from that same Greek word, glossa, meaning um, languages, but glossa is literally the tongue. So in transcription, quite often, the, the scribe or perhaps an instructor would utter the phrases or the verses and scribes would record them. And sometimes the scribe would sound out the words as he was recording them. So if he made a mistake in a vowel, that would cause a gloss. It was an error in the way he heard the tongue. So it's called a gloss. And that is what the interpreter's Bible conjectures here, because there is some sort of mistake in the grammar of the second half of Genesis 4.1. So they're saying that it must be a gloss and perhaps F should be off. And that would have Eve saying, I have gotten a man with the mark of Yahweh. But that also makes no sense to me because where else is a man born with the mark of God? Not nowhere. That's not a, a biblical paradigm so far as I've ever seen. So why would Eve say that? Cain wasn't marked until much later when he killed Abel. So why would Eve 
be inferring that that there was a um, prophecy of that sort. Why would she be, have been conscious of that? We can't. We have to conjecture a lot, even to accept their explanation that it's a gloss. I think it's just a corrupted, corrupted grammar, and that the verse was corrupted at an early time. And I'm going to explain why, or. or I'm going to explain why I think the verse was corrupted in an early time. I could prove it in, in the hexapla of origin. And I hope I sufficiently explain what a gloss was. What, when a scribe yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I was just picturing it. If, if, you're, and, um, right. if you're trying to trans... I'm sorry. When calling it out to you and you're just writing it, you're not... Con Right. That if you're trying to translate something, it's much easier if someone's speaking to you and just reading it out to you rather than constantly looking over, translating it, looking over, translating it. And you can easily see how errors would, um, you know, could occur very easily. Well, well right. It's, it, it is supposed that this practice began at an early time. In the monasteries, an instructor would um, recite scripture they wanted to make copies of the manuscripts, right? And instead of, sometimes they made one copy at a time. One scribe would make one copy at a time. But sometimes, apparently, an instructor who was an advanced monk would recite the scriptures and a whole classroom full of scribes, students functioning as scribes, would write out what the instructor was saying that way they could get a lot of copies of, of the manuscripts in one shot. So they didn't have copy machines in those days and, and um, CDs. Well, well, if one scribe heard, misheard something, suppose that a vowel was different and misheard it, he would write the wrong word. And because he misheard the tongue, because he misunderstood the tongue of the instructor, that would be called a gloss. That's why it's called a gloss. So that's what gloss means. Now, it can be established that this gloss is indeed quite old, if I should call it a gloss. In the first half of the third century AD, the Alexandrian Christian scholar, even though I don't agree with a lot of what he wrote, he's still an, a Christian scholar, named Origen, created a work called the Hexapla, wherein he sought to compare the ancient, the, the text of the Hebrew Old Testament as he knew it with the various Greek translations which were available in his time. And he also compared them to a pre-Vulgate Latin translation because there were Latin translations of the scriptures in circulation long before Jerome made the quote-unquote official Latin church version called the Vulgate. So here I'm going to reproduce an addendum which I made to Clifton's original article on his website, and I made this in 2016. That's how long it took me to come across this. I don't remember how I found it, but I found it in... April of 2016, and realized the implications it had immediately and made an addendum to Clifton's paper. And I wrote, Origen's Hexapla, a work of the 3rd century AD, 
which placed his own Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Latin, and various other extant Greek translations of the Bible, all side by side in columns, shows many variant readings in the Greek versions of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 which helped to elucidate the problems that the earliest translators had with this verse. The fragment on display here, I'm going to include an actual um, scanned image of the book which I got this from. The fragment on display here is from volume 1, page 17 of Oregonus Hexaplorum, which is an edition of the existing fragments of Origins Hexapla, made by Fredericus Field of Trinity College and published at Oxford's Clarendon Press in 1875. The PDF facsimiles of the two-volume set, as well as a screenshot of the entire page containing this fragment. I will make um, links to if anybody wants to download them and see it for themselves. They're already linked on Clifton's article, The Problem with Genesis 4.1. So this, um, this entry in Origins Hexapla which shows the various translations of part of the text of Genesis 4.1 into Greek, is wanting the first half of the verse. And, and I really don't understand why, but Origins Hexapla did not um, survive to us entirely. We only have these fragments of it available. Most of the original copies were evidently lost to time, and, and fell into decay. For some reason, the church did not preserve them. The Roman Catholic Church considered the third century church father Origen to be a heretic, so naturally it would not preserve his work. In fact, the Roman Catholic Church considers all of the early church fathers to be heretics in one way or another. They accept Irenaeus, but they don't follow Irenaeus, so go figure that one out. So I'm not ready to ascertain exactly why the entire first half of the verse is wanting from this edition. I can only assume that it's because the hexapla did not survive to us completely, and the volume we have is a volume of fragments and it is written entirely in Latin. So I'm not proficient at Latin. I understand some Latin, but I can't just read it. So I really can't read the introduction and, and all of the other notes in the book without a lot of labor anyway. That the author reproduced both the Hebrew and Latin texts at the beginning of each verse, and then gave all of the readings from various Greek translations, which is what Origins Hexapla did. Translating the various Greek interpretations of the Hebrew into English, the following readings are found, and all of the translations are my own, and 
I have possible variations in brackets, which I will also include here in this podcast version. This is the first time I've actually presented this in a podcast, so far as I remember. I don't really remember if I reproduced this earlier. The Latin version in Origins Hexapla says, and this is my own translation, but it's accurate, and you could check it for yourself, I got a man to help Yahweh, or I got a man to help the Lord, but the Latin has the word for Jove, which is Yahweh. I got a man to help Yahweh. The first Greek reading, I have acquired a man through God or by God. Now, there is a definite article accompanying the word God. So it is the God or a particular God. So we capitalize the word as a reference to the God of the Bible. And this is also the reading which is found in our modern Septuagints, the same exact Greek, the same exact Greek letter for letter. I have acquired a man through God or by God. The second Greek reading, and there's a note that this is the Hebrew and Syriac. So this is evidently Origen's own translation into Greek from his Hebrew and Aramaic sources. And it says, I have acquired a man with a God or by a God. Now, there's no definite article. So that indicates that it's not a particular God. So in English, we add the indefinite article, the letter A, the word a, a God or a God. The third Greek reading, I have acquired a man with a Lord. Again, there is no definite article. And since there's no definite article, it's no definite Lord. So I added an indefinite article, a. The fourth Greek reading, I have acquired a man, comma, a Lord. Now, why? Because the two nouns are each singular, and they are each in the accusative case with no prepositions. So, they are both, and this is the way Greek works, they are both the object of the verb, and therefore they refer to one and the same object. A man, we would write in English, a man who is a lord. So the fourth Greek reading, I have acquired a man, a lord. I have acquired a man who is a lord. While these readings do not directly support Clifton's entire thesis, which he presented in the problem with Genesis 4.1, they do support the assertion that the text of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, was rather problematic to the earliest translators of Hebrew into Greek or Latin. For that reason, Clifton turned to the Aramaic Targums for an indication of how the Hebrew scribes of the same era understood the passage. Now, before we discuss the Targums, it must be noted that the divergent readings of Origen's Hexapla for the second half of Genesis 4.1 also suggest a divergence of interpretations for the first half of the verse. 
But unfortunately, the copies we have want the first half of the verse completely. Even more unfortunately, the copies of Genesis found in the Dead Sea Scrolls are also evidently all wanting the text of Genesis 4.1, the verses missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The following is taken from the Targum of Palestine, commonly entitled the Targum of Jonathan ben Uziel. On the book of Genesis for Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. The date of this work is highly debated, even among the Jews. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, who had desired the angel, and she conceived and bare Cain. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. Now, that's how an early Jew, or perhaps an early medieval Jew, interpreted Genesis 4.1. Likewise, Clifton cited a medieval rabbi. And although the work of any Jew is questionable, this is from the 9th century and shows that long after Christ, there remained questions as to the original meaning of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. So he wrote, in another rabbinic work, Perk de Rabbi Eleazar said, or wrote, and she saw that his likeness was not of earthly beings, but of the heavenly beings. And she prophesied and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So, we don't really know if the author of the Targum of Palestine was what we would consider a Jew or not, but that's beside the point. We'll consider him a Jew for our purposes here. We do not esteem the Targums as canon, and they are not even authoritative, but they complement other works which are certainly of early Christian provenance in, in the interpretation of this passage. First, Phil, did um, Oregon, did he do the, um, did he go for the entire Bible, like, compare every verse together or is it just particularly for genesis 4 1 oh no gen the, the the hexapla of origin or perhaps it could be pronounced oregon that the um the hexapla was a voluminous work that sought to put the entire hebrew manuscripts um the the septuagint as we traditionally know the Greek translation of scriptures called the Septuagint, which is only one particular Greek translation, right? So we got the Hebrew manuscripts and the Septuagint, and then we have translations made by other men into Greek. And there were um, several of those. Sematicus was one of them, and even Emmaheiser, I mean, not Emma Heiser, even Charles Weissman cites um, the translation of Sematicus in, in reference to um, a passage that we discussed last week, I believe. So, so Sematicus was another version, and, and there were one or two others. Akinus, I, I believe, Origen had included. So there, there were actually at least four 
um, translations of the scriptures into Greek in circulation at his time. And then there was the Vulgate. So he took those and the Hebrew, I think his own Greek translation, a, a copy of a Latin translation, the original Hebrew and three Greek translations, the Septuagint and Aquinas and Symmaticus, I believe. He took those six versions of the scripture and put them side by side in columns for the entire Old Testament, or, or at least the Old Testament as it was known to him. So that was the hexapla, and, and that was a huge work because he was translating it in his own Greek as he went along and had three other Greek copies plus the Hebrew plus the Latin. So that's a voluminous work. That, that was a great effort, and sadly, it's lost to time. We only have those fragments that are reproduced. I mean, the fragments are pretty, it, it's a pretty um, large subset of Origen's work, but one of these crucial passages is half missing, and that's Genesis 4.1. Just like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a lot of scripture that yep. survives in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but there's a lot of crucial passages that we debate the interpretation of, which I would hope that the Dead Sea Scrolls could clarify, and they're missing. And Genesis 4.1 is one of those crucial passages. I was just going to say that. That's a bit suspicious. Yeah, right. Isn't it, it is that suspicious. Genesis 4.1 is missing from the dead. I agree it's suspicious. But um, the ending to Genesis 3 and Genesis 4.1 are missing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's a lot of other crucial passages. I, I mean, later And also prophets, Genesis 6, right? Later in the prophets, in, in Jeremiah... And in some of the other books, but I remember a few passages specifically in Jeremiah that are missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls, that there's a discrepancy between the Masoretic text and the Hebrew uh, Masoretic text and the Greek Septuagint. There are discrepancies here and there, and quite often I've turned to the Dead Sea Scrolls, hopefully to mediate the discrepancy and the passage is missing from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I'm like, damn, damn. <laughs> I'm disappointed. <laughs> yeah. What one, what one, um, one of those passages, I think, is where it says, thou art my battle axe and weapons of war. It doesn't say that. It's a different reading in the Septuagint. That might be one of them. I, I don't really remember that well. But I remember passages, looking up passages in Jeremiah and several other books, and it's noted throughout my um, my commentaries. What when that happens, I always note it when I make an actual commentary on 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 a particular book of the Old Testament. I know I've noted it several times throughout my commentaries when a passage was actually missing from Dead Sea Scrolls, so it couldn't mediate a difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. So this is one of them, Genesis 4.1. It's missing, the first half is missing from Origen's Hexapla, but fortunately we do have the second half, which clearly shows that there was a problem translating the second half of Genesis 4.1 all the way back in, in, the, in, in the time of the Septuagint through the time of Origen. For 500 years already, 
they had a problem translating that verse. So we see differences, important differences between the Latin Vulgate, the Septuagint, and, and the other Greek translators. So we moved on to the Targums, and they are um, early medieval Jewish writings. If we concede that the Targum of Jerusalem was actually Jewish, that's fine. So now we have even earlier Christian works. And the first among these I will mention is the Protoevangelion of James, which I actually consider to be an early Roman Catholic work and not authentic scripture, at least entirely. But it reflects what at least some early Christians who lived before the 5th century had thought about Genesis chapters 3 and 4. There, speaking of Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, the, the um, earthly stepfather of Jesus Christ, speaking of Joseph, after he realized that Mary, a virgin whom he betrothed, was with child, and he didn't do it, right? We read in chapter 10 of the Protoevangelion of James. And when her sixth month was come, in other words, Joseph had been away working and came back to this virgin he betrothed when she was six months pregnant. Joseph returned from building houses abroad, which was his trade, and entering into the house, found the virgin grown big. Then, Smiling upon his face, he said, With what face can I look up to the Lord my God? In other words, Joseph is disgraced because he founds a woman he betrothed who's a virgin, and she's pregnant. And he's like, how did this happen? And he's, he's shamed about it. Or what shall I say concerning this young woman? For I received her a virgin out of the temple of the Lord my God and have not preserved her such. He, she's not a virgin. She's six months pregnant. It's pretty obvious. He's blaming himself for this failure. Who has thus deceived me? Who has committed this evil in my house? And seducing the virgin from me has defiled her. When something bad happened in a man's house, the man took responsibility for it because it happened in his house. That was in line with the customs and traditions of the time. Is not the history of Adam exactly accomplished in me? For in the very instant of his glory, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced her. Just after the same manner, it has happened to me. So what do we have? We have Joseph comparing his situation, finding Mary pregnant, with Adam's situation, that Eve was impregnated by the serpent. And this is an early Christian work. This dates to at least as old as the 4th century. Um, many Bible scholars dated to the late 1st or 2nd century A.D., 
it 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 doesn't matter how old it is. The fact is that it's of great antiquity, and it shows that early Christians, at least some early Christians, did believe exactly what we believe. And a more authentic piece of Christian literature is the early book known as Four Maccabees, the fourth book of Maccabees, which is esteemed to have been written in the first or second century AD, but it was possibly written sooner than that. It was possibly written 100 or 200 years sooner than that. We don't know for sure, but we'll concede the first or second century AD. There, in 4 Maccabees, in chapter 18, a pious woman of seven children recounts how she lived her life, and it reads, And the righteous mother of the seven children spoke also as follows to her offspring. I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care of the built-up rib. That's a direct reference to Eve as she was created in Genesis chapter 2. No destroyer of the desert or ravisher of the plain injured me, nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of my chast virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. So here we see certain Christian works which question the common versions of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. And they are earlier than the Jewish works which do so. But there are several ancient sources and several ways of showing that there are problems with this verse as it is generally understood in the Septuagint and the Masoretic texts. First, it contains a gloss in its second half, the translations of which may also raise questions about the veracity of the first half. Then there is a collection of early writings, both Christian and Jewish, which offer challenges to the conventional reading of the first half. So, if Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 is a corrupt witness, which we have demonstrated here, then the only logical conclusion is that it is unreliable by itself. And if it is by itself, if it is the only witness supporting the claim that Cain was the natural son of Adam, then without other witnesses, it certainly cannot be used to formulate a doctrine. As Christ himself had said in Matthew chapter 18, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. There are many more witnesses that either indicate or even insist that Cain was not the natural son of Adam. But for now, we should probably continue with Weissman, unless you have anything you want to add to that. Yeah, I was just going to say that that's all they've got for Cain being of Adam, that one verse. There's nothing else in Scripture. So, you know, they should have a lot more evidence. Well, and, right. Um, I also, also think it's interesting how Christ's um, birth is the exact opposite of Cain, you know, um, 
the fallen angel or whatever you want to say, seduced Eve, produced a son and he killed Abel and Christ comes and rather he, he instead does the opposite. He sacrifices for um, his brothers and for his whole race. It's like there's a message from Christ there as well. Right. Christ saved his brethren and his race rather than killing his brother. And as John says in his first, exactly. first epistle, he who kills his brother is a murderer. Hating your brother, he who hates his brother is a murderer. That's a real murderer. <clears throat> For now, we shall continue with Weissman on page 27. And Weissman says, this idea is supported. The idea that Genesis 4.1 is mistranslated, which we go way beyond. We admit that it's, it. well, first, the second half can't really be translated. The first half, as the Hebrew reads, is not mistranslated. It's translated properly. But we assert that the verse is corrupt and that these early Christian works and some Jewish works in the Targums, these early writings help establish that there were indeed, at the earliest times, by Christian writers, contentions over the real essence or meaning or, or the real fabric, the original readings of Genesis 4.1. There were contentions over it, that it wasn't accepted by many early Christians. So Weissman says, this idea is supported by pointing out that nowhere in Scripture does it say that Adam begat Cain. This is believed to be critical because progeny are usually stated in the Bible term by the term begat. This reasoning and interpretation for nullifying Adam as the father of Cain is not in accord with Scripture. For we read in the same chapter that Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bare Enoch. Well, where you... We are not splitting hairs over the presence or absence of the term begat. And that is, that, that is actually also a childish, a, a, childish, um, a childish argument. And if you really want to split hairs, if you look up the term begat, in Strong's Concordance, in Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, you'll find that it is translated from a Hebrew word, yalad, and that's spelled Y-A-L-A-D in English, yalad, which is Strong's number 3205, right? Begat. Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness. That's the Hebrew word yalad. But then, if you um, if you look up in Strong's Concordance the Hebrew word bear in Genesis 4:1, you'll find the same word yalad is translated bear. If it's used of a woman, it's translated bear. If it's used of a man, it's translated begot. It's the same word. So Weissman's article, what Weissman's argument is really ridiculous, all right? And, and I just noticed that since I wrote my notes. I, I just noticed that 
within the last five minutes that, that begot and bear in Genesis in those early chapters are both translated from the same word yalad. And we're not even going to split term hairs over that term. It's immaterial. That proves it's immaterial. But it is true that nowhere else in scripture, besides Genesis 4.1, is Cain supposed to be a son of Adam. And furthermore, the tribe of the Kenites are never reckoned as sons of Adam. When Seth was born, he was a replacement for Abel, and the father's line continued through him. Later in scripture, Seth's descendants are called the sons of Adam, and their line is counted, but not Cain's. For example, in Jude 14 and Deuteronomy 32.8, which refers to Genesis chapter 10. Deuteronomy 32.8 is a reference to the dividing of the land between the tribes of Genesis chapter 10, which happened in Genesis chapter 11. Jude 14. In Jude 14, the apostle calls Enoch seventh from Adam. Enoch was a descendant of Seth. He's referring to the descendant of Seth. So if Enoch is seventh from Adam... How could that be if the descendants of Cain are from Adam? Because there would be many more from Adam besides Enoch. So that alone helps to establish that the inheritance of Adam never belonged to Cain in the first place, as the line continued through Seth as a replacement for Abel. And there are many other questions that can be raised in regard to that, which all prove Weissman to be wrong. Where, in scripture, does a man kill a brother, and if he is not found liable to death and executed, where is he deprived of his inheritance? Yet, without question, Seth is accounted the heir to Adam as a replacement for Abel. Cain was not replaced, but the line of Adam was continued through Seth and not through Cain. David. King David was a murderer and kept his inheritance and the promises which God had made to him. David's son Absalom killed his own brother Amnon, but had a cause and was later restored to his father. Ultimately, David's son Solomon, the son of the woman whose husband David had killed, received the inheritance and blessings of his father. Manasseh, the king of Judah, reigned for 55 years, the longest of any Old Covenant king. He was also a murderer, and it says in 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 16, he was a murderer who shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Yet Manasseh's son took his inheritance and he is mentioned in the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1, verse 10. So why was the son of Cain not listed as an heir of Adam? If the son of Manasseh can still receive everything in spite of the fact that his father was a murderer. And Manasseh himself is still mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. Yet Manasseh was a murderer far beyond Cain. Cain only killed one brother. Manasseh 
fill Jerusalem with blood from innocent blood from one end to the other. Being a murderer does not automatically disqualify you for an inheritance. Page 28 of Weissman's book, he says, note that the word new is used here in the same way it is used in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Also note that it does not say that Cain begat Enoch, but uses the word bear, as was also used in Genesis 4.1 to describe the birth of Cain. And this is how stupid Weissman is. He doesn't realize that the two words were translated from the same Hebrew word. So that's pretty dumb. <laughs> if you're going to write on a Hebrew word, you look up the meaning. You don't take it for granted. Just because you see two different words in English, you don't take that for granted. You go and look and see which Hebrew word each of those English words was translated from. If Weissman had taken just a little effort, like I just did 10 minutes ago, but I'm not writing on it. I'm only answering Weissman, so I'm not responsible. Weissman was responsible, but I just noticed 10 minutes ago looking here in Bible works as I was talking, that both words, bear and begot, are translated from Yalad, from the same Hebrew word. So why is Weissman even making this argument? <laughs> he, he says, the account of Seth's birth also reveals the true interpretation of Genesis 4.1. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. Genesis 4.25. And we're not even going to argue this. It's ridiculous. It's not our argument. We are going to omit the next two paragraphs where Weissman continues his article concerning this word for, for new. And we're going to get to his conclusion. The terms new or known are commonly used in reference to sexual relations. And he lists citations from Genesis and Judges, and that's fine. Genesis 4.1 merely states that Adam had sexual relations with Eve, which resulted in the birth of Cain. Well, that's true if we accept the verse in its corrupted form, because the verse is corrupted. Also note, Weissman says, that in the above verse, he, cites, he cited a passage from Samuel. Elkanah begat Samuel. Elkanah begat Samuel. Nor does it say so anywhere in Scripture. There seems to be something confused here. I'm, I'm sorry, maybe I trans, transcribed it errantly. He says there are many instances in the Bible where offspring are not described by the term begat. Nowhere does it say that Adam begat Abel or that Adam was the father of Abel. And, well, yes, I, I would because Eve bear his brother Abel, it says the same word, Yalad. So it says Eve begot Abel. It's the same word. Wow. So Weissman's entire, um, what Weissman's entire argument is ridiculous, but it's not our argument in the first place. We would not um, prove to seed line by arguing over the word God, we would simply prove to seed line by exhibiting the fact that Genesis 4.1 is a corrupt verse and 
in part, this is only a partial proof, it's not our only proof, that Cain is never again mentioned as being Adam's son. We omitted some of Weissman's evidence because we do not argue this use of the word new in Genesis 4.1. Rather, we know that the verse is corrupt, as we have already demonstrated, and that it is therefore an unreliable witness. Being the only witness to Weissman's assertion, we cannot use it for doctrine. It's only one witness. But it must be noted that Weissman went to great lengths to show that the word no could be a reference to sexual relations. And also remember that earlier in his book, he denied this use for the words touch and eat, although we found sufficient scriptures to show that those words could also be used of sexual relations. So he uses such word studies which are convenient for him, and he discards those which do not support his arguments. He picks and chooses. Now he states that the terms bear, conceive, children, new, went in unto her, seed, son, or daughter are all used to convey sexual relations or offspring. Yet Weissman also denied that the serpent had seed, which were offspring. He's saying here that seed is used to describe sexual relations or offspring, but he denies that of the serpent. So now he contradicts himself once again. Later in this chapter, he will deny that fathers are literal fathers and that children are literal children. Continuing with Weissman, he says, As mentioned, another argument to counter the plain meaning of Genesis 4.1, he keeps relying on that one passage, involves genealogy. Their argument is that Cain is not listed anywhere in Adam's genealogy. It is said he is missing because he is not Adam's son, but is the son of Satan. Reference is sometimes made to Genesis 5, or the gene genealogy listings, I'm sorry, or the genealogy listings in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, or Matthew chapter 1. The fact is, and this is Weissman's statement, and he's going to make three or four, I think four statements here, which are all lies, and I'm going to prove they are lies. He says, the fact is that cursed or rejected people, such as Cain, are never included in the true genealogy of Adam, Noah, and Abraham. That's lie, one, lie number one. Then he says, Esau was a true Hebrew and descendant of Adam, but is not included in the genealogy listings because he was rejected by God. That's lie number two. Then he says, Adam was an, I'm sorry, Canaan was an Adamite, but is not listed in Adam's genealogy because he was cursed. That's lie number three, and I will prove it. Then he says, and, and this is like he's a serial liar. That's three sentences and three lies. Then he says, Ishmael was Abraham's son but is not in Abraham's genealogy as he was not of the chosen seed. That's lie number four. Then he says, also, people who died without having children, such as Abel, or who married into another lineage, are not listed in the genealogy of Adam, although they were true descendants of Adam. And that's really lie number five. But I did not address that in my notes, which are coming. 
But that is also a lie. The fact that Cain or others are not listed in the genealogy of Adam does not necessarily mean they were not descendants of Adam. And that's a lie, but we will prove it by proving that all of these other things which Weissman said are lies. Four lies in a row. And the fifth lie is a lie that I'm not going to address. But it is evident that when an older brother dies, that the younger brother is expected to raise up seed for his brother. Now, if the firstborn son is not dead, then there is no use for the levirate law of raising seed for a brother. So, if Cain was really the firstborn son of Adam, Seth would not have been necessary at all. It would not have been necessary for Adam to have another son in order to replace Abel because he had Cain. And even if Cain was a sinner, Cain's son would be okay and Cain's son would inherit. Weissman was supposedly an expert on a law. Weissman is a fraud and a deceiver. I don't know if you want to add to that before I get on to proving each one of these statements Weissman well, made is a lie. Yeah, he's just all over the place. It's unbelievable how, you know, he just makes statements like this. And even if you're not, um, you know, a total Bible student, you, you can think, yeah, all, all of Noah's descendants are listed in the genealogy. And so is Esau. So, so what's he talking about here? It's just amazing how he gets away with this. He's just blowing smoke out of his ass. He's blowing smoke out of his ass to try to cover for the lies coming out of his mouth. That's what the old cowboys did in the Western movies. They raised a lot of dust so that they could escape. That's what Weissman is doing here. He's raising a lot of dust so that he could get his deception, get you to believe his deception. But this is all lies. It's a great cloud of lies. Here, Weissman lied on several occasions. The most striking lie in his claim that Canaan is his claim that Canaan was an Adamite, but is not listed in Adam's genealogy because he was cursed. However, Adam's genealogy is interrupted at Noah because of the account of the sin and the resulting flood. And then the account of Adam's genealogy continues in Genesis chapter 10. And Canaan and all the tribes of the Canaanites are mentioned along with the rest of the sons of Noah, from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Canaan's father is Ham. Canaan was cursed by Noah in Genesis chapter 9, but then he is mentioned among the sons of Noah in Genesis chapter 10. Not only him, but all of his sons. So how does Weissman say that Canaan is not listed in Adam's genealogy because he was cursed? when Canaan certainly is in his rightful place in Genesis chapter 10 as the youngest of the sons of Ham. How is Weissman not a liar? It's right there in black and white. <laughs> it's a couple of paragraphs, I think. It's a couple of verses in, in Genesis chapter 10.
Let, let's let, let's see it. Now, now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, the descendants of Adam, the genealogy of Adam, as it was after the flood. Now, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. And, and then we get down to verse 6. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mitzrayim, and Foot, and Canaan. And then we get down to chat to verse 15 of Genesis chapter 10. And Canaan begat Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Now, that's the eponymous ancestors of the Sidonians and the, and the Hittites, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinai, and the Arvidite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterward, where the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. There it is in the genealogy of Adam. And Charles Weissman is a damned liar. And there's a whole nother verse about Canaan and the Canaanites and Sodom and Gomorrah. And, and we see what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. But they're nevertheless mentioned in the genealogy of Adam through Noah in Genesis chapter 10. How is Weissman not a liar? And Weissman lies again, where he claims Esau is not included in the genealogy listings because he was rejected by God. Now, it's true that God hated Esau. But in the genealogy of First Chronicles chapter 1, which is the genealogy of Adam, we read, And Abraham begot Isaac, the sons of Isaac, Esau and Israel, the sons of Esau, Eliphaz, Ruel, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. From there, the descendants of Esau are described all the way down through the rest of the chapter for a total of 21 verses. In Genesis, Esau's descendants are listed in chapter 36, to which the entire chapter is devoted. So, how is Weissman not a habitual liar? Because two lies in a row, and, and you're basically a habitual liar. Weissman lied a third time, where he said Ishmael was Abraham's son, but is not in Abraham's genealogy, as he was not of the chosen seed. But Ishmael is listed, along with the sons which Abraham had with Keturah, and they weren't chosen, in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 28 to 33. That's six verses. Ishmael's descendants are listed again in Genesis chapter 25, and like half a chapter is devoted to them. So how is Weissman not a serpent, a son of the father of lies? That's three sentences and three lies. Where in Genesis the sons of Canaan, Ishmael, and Esau are listed, it is also clearly expressed who their fathers are. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 6, and the sons of Ham, Cush and Mitzrayim and Foot and Canaan. Then at the end of, and I didn't, I'm not responsible for the chapter divisions, right? They're artificial. The chapter divisions were added in the medieval times. In, in uh, 3,000 years after Moses wrote this, somebody put in chapter and verse divisions, right? So at the end of Genesis chapter 25, in the last verse, now, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I, I got ahead of myself. That's not a chapter division. That's Genesis 25, 12. 
Now, these are the generation of Ishmael, Abraham's son. So we see that where the descendants of Ishmael are listed, he is called Abraham's son. Where the descendants of Canaan are listed, he is called a son of Ham. Then in Genesis chapter 35, verse 29, that's the last verse in Genesis chapter 35. It says, And Isaac gave up the ghost and died, and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days, and his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Then the very next verse, chapter 36, verse 1. Now these are the generations of Esau. Who is Edom? So in all three places where we have the descendants of Canaan, Ishmael, and Esau, in the genealogies, which Weissman lied about, we see their fathers are mentioned in company with them. But in Genesis chapter 4, where the descendants of Cain are listed, and in many of the places where the tribe of the Kenites are mentioned later, there is never any direct connection to Adam. Now, it, could be, um, it can be argued that Adam was mentioned in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. But the descendants of Cain are much later in the chapter, and Adam is not mentioned. The descendants of Cain, remember the chapter divisions are all artificial. The descendants of Cain, from verse 17, Adam is not mentioned. Now, the birth of Seth happens in... Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. But then, when the descendants of Seth are mentioned in Genesis chapter 5, it is sure to tell us that they all came from Adam, and Adam is mentioned again. So, it's an anomaly that Adam isn't mentioned, where the descendants of Cain are described from Genesis chapter 4, verse 18, or verse 17, I'm sorry. So there's, that there's many ways to see that Cain is disconnected from Adam, even in spite of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and that verse is corrupted, so it cannot be trusted. But why did Weissman lie three times in a row and a fourth about these genealogies? Because cursed people are always mentioned in genealogies. It don't matter that they're cursed. It don't matter that they're murderers. Murderers are in the genealogy of Christ and are mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. It is indisputable that Canaan, Ishmael, and Esau came from Adam, in spite of their rejection and their curses. And they are included in the genealogies of Adam's descendants. But Cain is never included. It is not that the writers of 1 Chronicles had forgotten about them. As we read in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 55, And the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabez, the Tirathites and Shimeathites and Sugathites, these are the Kenites that came of Hamath, the father of the house of Rechab. They are there. There is no escaping that. But no genealogy connecting them to Adam is ever given. They are never included in the genealogies of Adam. 
Weissman lied a fourth time in that paragraph, actually a fifth, where he said that cursed or rejected people such as Cain are never included in the true genealogy of Adam, Noah, and Abraham. So aside from Cain, who certainly is listed in Genesis chapter 10, another example of accursed men who are listed in the genealogies is the accursed king Jeconiah of Judah who was later mentioned in the genealogy of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11. So how is Weissman not an outright deceiver? How? <laughs> wow. Jack and I was yeah. cut off uh, and accursed. That's as we keep his... saying. Wow. I'm sorry. Go on. Go on. Sorry. Go on. I was just saying, as we keep saying, it's ways it's not that Cain was cursed it's that he was a bastard and anyone who mixes in with this bastard race or any other bastard race their descendants become bastards and from then on they're not no longer part of the Adamic race it's that simple well well right exactly and and Weissman lie after lie after lie to try to disprove two seed line. If two seed line was not true, you would not need any lie to disprove it, period. But he just keeps on lying. It'd be the other way around. Wow. We'd have to keep coming up with liars and liars to try and discredit Weissman. Exactly. Exactly. We should be the ones lying, right? Weissman is first... I'm going to be honest, right? Because I have friends, Michael G. in the Christogenia Forum. He just signed up for the forum. But he's been hanging around on my chat servers and and in my circles for 10 years. He just finally signed up at the forum after 10 years, right? He's not very um, profuse (laughs) with with his computer, right? He's not a big poster. He doesn't do social media. He's just quiet, but he could talk on the chat server. He likes to do that. So, so Michael, yeah. Michael, yet you know, I, I learned Christian identity in prison. Did, did in he 19- meet Mike Weissman? I believe he did. He met a lot of those people. He, he had lunches with E. Raymond Cap. He's been around CI since the seventies, and and he did meet a lot of those people. I don't remember if he actually met Weissman, but I wouldn't doubt it because he he did. He has discussed people he did meet over the years, and and he's familiar with um, Pete Peters, Ted Wyland. He's spoken to them all, E. Raymond Capt, and and probably others. So, so he had told me about a week ago in a chat server that back in the seventies and eighties that Weissman was the shit, that he was considered the scholar of CI by. All these other um, identity pastors that had rejected to seed line, they all followed Weissman. And if they're following Weissman, and this, I didn't know the quality of Weissman's work really until we started addressing this book. I never, I mean, I read um, Who Is Isari Dom and The Origins of Race and Civilization, but that was very early in my own Christian identity studies, probably back in 1997. So I was too much of a neophyte at that time to judge the quality of his work. But from from 1998, 
I stopped reading any other identity writer except for my work with Clifton and my proofreading and editing for Clifton. I did that from um, the end of 1999. And I did that, really, I wasn't too excited about doing that. I only wanted to study original sources at that time, but I did it and, and it, it worked out well, right? So I didn't really um, understand the quality of Weissman's work until we started addressing this book. It's the first thing I've read of his since Who Is the Sorry Dom in 1997, which is all kind of fuzzy to me. But, but if this is the quality of the best scholar of the generation that, that denied two seed line, all these men are clowns for believing this bullshit. They're all clowns. Pete Peters, um, Ted Wyland, and everybody to follow. Charles Weissman is a clown for believing this trash. He lies time after time after time after time. And they all just accept it and run with it. This is the quality of, of these so-called Christian identity pastors. They all suck. That's my rant for today. That's my rant. Yeah, you can't help but wonder that he really held it back, that um, if he hadn't been around, that Christian identity would have been, um, you know, a lot more spread without him constantly polluting it and well, people right. like him. That that's yeah, you know, I learned most I, I learned about most of the identity heretics just by proofreading for Clifton. I, I didn't go chase him down for myself, but but when I when I finally got out of prison, I realized that I had a challenge in front of me to try to supplant all of this bullshit because it's all lies. It's all wrong. It's not Christian identity. They are actually trying to steal the identity out of Christianity. Then once people are convinced that this crap, they start to accept converso Jews like Brother Nathaniel and, and all these other intruders, this has been the problem throughout the history of Christianity. Imagining that wolves can become sheep, that tares could have water sprinkled on them and somehow become wheat. And it's not so. And that's my rant. Yeah, and you can imagine um, even in Jeremiah's time, he had to deal with these wolves. Exactly. They were creeping in even then. Exactly. And he basically told them, you know, in Jeremiah 8.8, 8, he's basically telling these self-righteous bastards that they're full of shit. They think they have the law of the Lord, but the pen of the scribes <laughs> is in vain. And that's why it's the, the revelation of Christ and the parables of Christ are so important. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, revealed these things for us. We should interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. It can never be the other way around. Paul of Tarsus explains in his epistles to the Corinthians that there's a veil over the Old Testament that you can't understand it properly unless you accept Christ and the words in the Gospel of Christ. That's the words of Paul. Weissman always starts at Genesis 4.1 and tries to move forward. That ain't the way to do it. You start in Revelation chapter 12 and in Matthew chapter 13, and that helps you understand what really happened in Genesis. Otherwise, you aren't going to understand it. So, in effect, 
No Jew could ever understand Genesis, period, because they don't have those words of Christ. They don't have that understanding. Yeah, we need Yahweh. We need Yahweh or Christ to open our eyes. No doubt. Well, thanks for putting up with that. (laughs) I had to do it. I had to say it. I'm probably going to keep on saying it. (laughs) Thanks for being here. And and, um, we'll do um, this again next week. That's okay. Bill, did you have your own interpretation at all of Genesis 4.1? Have you ever thought about it? No. It's corrupt. Why should I think about it? It's corrupt, so it's not a valid witness. And I'm going to <laughs> interpret the the um, events of Genesis 3 without Genesis 4.1. That's the appropriate, um, honest, Christian, academic way to look at it. I don't. I don't accept. Yeah, the, exactly. I don't. Clifton did accept the interpret interpolations of the Targums, and it's clear to me that the Targums, whether they were Jews or Judeans that wrote them, is, is um, difficult to perceive. Right? I mean, the ninth-century rabbi is almost certainly a Jew, but if the um, author of the Targum, Jonathan, was as early as the second century as some scholars maintain, while others date him much later. If he was as early as the second century, he may have been a a man of Judah or or an Israelite in Judea, who who, there were a lot of Israelites that stayed in um, what we call Judaism after 70 AD. Like Josephus, he was just a deceived Judean. He wasn't born until five years after the crucifixion. You can't imagine the authorities in in Judea were ever telling the truth about Christ. So a man born five (laughs) years after the crucifixion is going to be stuck in that paradigm, right? And Josephus was one of them. But he was, as I believe, a good Israelite and an honest man, even though he lived in the error of the times like we see today, right? So the author of the first Targum, the Jerusalem Targum, may have been a Judean rather than a Jew, but it's immaterial because the Christian literature that precedes those Targums, that's older than those Targums, the Protoevangelion of James and, and the fourth book of Maccabees, and there are other allusions in other apocryphal works, They show that Christians of the time had skepticism as to the truth of Genesis 4.1. They showed that they were um, believing it, that it said something other than it says in our modern versions. So they called it into question. It's very clear. And it's very clearly called into question throughout the New Testament, except that when we get to those arguments which Weissman makes, then we will realize that Weissman really doesn't believe that father means father, that son means son, that seed means seed. Then all of a sudden he wants to say they're all metaphors for whether or not you believe or have faith or they're all spiritual um, uses of the terms. So Weissman is the Gnostic because that's the essence of Gnosticism that words mean something other than they usually do, so that yeah, they exactly. twist it into their own worldview. Weissman's the Gnostic. He's a clown. And, and this is the worst biblical scholarship I, I've seen. I, I mean, I'm sure I would get even worse if I got into 
the works of Ted Wyland and Pete Peters, but this stuff is horrible. Okay. Thank you for being here. <laughs> yeah. And we'll see you next week when we continue with chapter four of, of Weissman's book. I hate to call it a book. <laughs> it's just trash. <laughs> book of BS. Yeah. All well, right. Brilliant. Look forward to it, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of our race. Thank you. <laughs>